Welcome to The Next Spring, a podcast about renewal and reinvention. I'm your host, Kathleen Goodman, a longtime student of change and an avid learner who loves to spot the links in disparate ideas. I'm in the throes of my own reinvention, so come walk along with me as I find my way through the unknown. This is episode four, Rest. For those of you who are following closely along, you may have noticed there wasn't an episode last week. Last week, I took a rest. Resting is yet another way to make space for what's trying to emerge, to give it room to speak and process and all that jazz. And resting might surprise you. It doesn't always look like you might picture. So this week, we'll explore the idea of rest and look into different ways that it can help us explore, meander, and find clarity in the midst of upheaval and transition. As we begin, I should confess to you, I don't rest well. I'm kind of a busy soul, puttering, tidying, fixing, doing... Even on vacation, I take photos or read books or cook elaborate meals or create wild worlds for my kid to enjoy. I can't even really sit still on a beach. A little time in a lounge chair is nice, but then I tend to end up strolling the shoreline hunting for sea life. I remember when I lived in New England, there was a beach I loved to go to on the North Shore. It was a drive outside of the city. Parking was a trip, but then you'd have to walk over the sand dunes to get to the beach with your cooler, a chair, etc. And when I'd crest the hill, there it would be, the whole brightly colored and bustling beach suddenly expanding before me. Diapered kids digging and eating sand, squealing ones tightly holding a hand while they eased their way into the water. And a million bikini-clad beach babes basking in the sun. I'm very fair-skinned, so I would sit under my umbrella, slathered in SPF 50, and read. First, I'd work through the magazines and then crack a book. The light, mildless, but mildly interesting magazines were always my first move, like candy for my brain cells. But after a bit, I'd get restless and pop out of my chair, announcing I was going for a walk. It was fun to people watch. I enjoyed scanning the horizon for piping plovers, fishing for critters in the sand with their fast feet and their tiny pointed beaks. They would move in packs, busy like me, strolling around, then running across the sand as a wave would break, and then occasionally taking to the air if an onlooker like me got a little too close. On the especially hot, muggy New England summer days, I'd go for a swim. The North Atlantic is not warm. It's a cold body of water year-round. Not frigid, but not inviting like a lake that heats up gradually with the summer sun, or the gentle refresh of tropical waters. But if it's hot and muggy enough, getting into the water feels like a dream. You can almost feel the heat dissipate as it sizzles right out of you and into the ocean. I enjoyed those beach days in New England, but it wasn't really my thing. In my childhood, beach time was spent hunting for critters in a tide pool. Purple shore crabs skittering away when you turned over the rocks they hide under. Sea anemones sagging like giant sacks of snot when they get exposed to air at the low tide. Sea stars clinging to the sides of rocks, nooks, and crannies. Beaches were busy places, exploring places, places to discover, to find the nearly meditative state of scanning as you gingerly walk. If you really get present, really quiet your pace, and look clearly while not really focusing on anything, you'll discover and spot something. An opalescent nudibranch, a sea lemon, a baby Pacific octopus working among the common critters, 
That's the thrill, the moment of discovery. Rest maybe isn't only sitting down. Maybe it can also be in motion, a state of being as much as anything. Like my two beaches, I got a good lesson in radical rest over the last several months. When inflammation from stress gets so intense in your body, it's like a wildfire. It doesn't just go away with a week off or a few nights of good sleep. I had to work at resting, which was kind of a strange paradox. Um, I had to let my days be fluid, a really different rhythm, almost as a way to signal to my brain that we're not in danger. A chance to breathe, time to move slowly, to walk slowly, to ask myself, what do we feel like doing right now? To make a space for energy to rise up. That was rest. It isn't pulling back from the world. It was holding an opening for something inside to find its way up to the surface. Rest almost feels like the wrong word. It was a clearing, an opening, restoring harmony, possibility. The energy that rose up created energy as I did it. Rest became a place to open and scan for energy and notice when it came. We are bodies made for motion, but we have to rest, get quiet, to hear what we need to do next. And then when we move, it's supercharged, refueling us like a dynamo. Santiago Ramón y Cajal is credited as the founder of neuroscience. Long before he had the tools to prove it, he had a theory that concentration, the importance of singular focus, was key to getting to breakthroughs. But the other thing you needed was diversion, light, easy things to do that promote the association of new ideas. When the first fMRI pictures of a brain at rest were seen, there was a bias researchers had. It must be a mistake in the machinery because a brain at rest isn't doing anything at least not anything interesting. But now we've come to understand that when you rest between tasks, a whole different set of brain regions switch on. It's now called the default mode network, and it activates when we stop concentrating on external tasks. It's doing critical work on our behalf, but without our participation. When we stop trying to think about problems, our brain is plugging away and generating ideas to use when we return to it. When you're staring off into space, your brain consumes nearly the same amount of energy. All of this is summarized in a very accessible form in a book called Rest by Alex Sujung Kim Pang. In effect, in his book, he's challenging Malcolm Gladwell's It Takes 10,000 Hours of Practice for Mastery. Maybe the formula looks more like 10,000 hours of practice, 12,500 hours of rest, and 30,000 hours of sleep. He explores in the book a whole bunch of different ways that we rest. Some of them are more obvious, like napping and a good night's sleep, and others are more unexpected, like the power of walking or playing or a good morning routine. We'll explore some of the ideas around walking and playing in subsequent episodes, along with some other angles into it. So for today, let's focus on a good old nap and a good night's sleep. 
Now I have to confess, I'm not really a napper. The last time I took naps regularly was when I was an undergraduate, and I had the time in my afternoons, and my brain needed the recharge time. But there's a lot of people who swear by naps as a way of accessing the unexpected, refueling the creative spirit. Churchill, Kennedy, Johnson, they all took daily midday naps. Some were longer and shorter, but the idea was to create a break in the day and to clarify thinking and give your brain time to chew on things. Frank Lloyd Wright took naps, but he'd take them on a hard surface so he wouldn't oversleep. But he talked about how it would refuel his creativity. And Salvador Dali, probably the most extreme of these, um, would take his naps uh, purposefully interrupted. So he'd fall asleep with a heavy key in his hand, and he'd hold it gently. And as he drifted off into his sort of state of unconsciousness, the key would slowly fall from his relaxing hand and hit the ground loudly and wake him up. But he found in those moments when he was startled awake, he'd have access to the subconscious activity that was going on outside of the reaches of his awareness. And a lot of the wild creativity that he brought forward came from what he accessed in those moments. Napping can improve our memory, restore energy, but it can also invite perspectives and exploration that goes beyond what we can access when we stare at a problem directly and try to solve it. So maybe it's time for me to give napping a second try. The other aspect of rest that I wanted to talk about today is sleep, sleep at night. In Wintering by Catherine May, which we talked a little bit about in a previous episode, she has a section where she talks about slumber and specifically the patterns of sleep that we as humans innately have in winter. In the times before our mobile phones and alarm clocks and things were lighting up our lives, when, you know, conserving your candles or oil in your lamp was a priority, people would go to sleep earlier and wake later and be up and sometimes even active and out and about in the middle of the night. Before the Industrial Revolution, it was normal to divide the night into multiple periods. You'd have the first sleep and the second sleep. And in between, people would get up. They'd maybe even go out and visit with the neighbors. What a different world that is than how we handle sleep today, where we stay up too late and watch TV, take some melatonin to get off to sleep, and wake reluctantly when the alarm goes off in the morning. This in-between time in the night was seen as a welcome friend, a space for reflection. I had been reading Catherine May's book when I was on my retreat at the beginning of my medical leave, and I would go to bed early. There was nothing else to do, and it was dark. And I woke in the night. I resisted the urge to read and played around with just letting my thoughts rest on my breath, like a midnight meditation and I would wait for sleep to come. 
The wakings lessened over time, then they'd come back again, sometimes on the heels of a vivid dream. But they changed from worry and fear to imagination and possibility. Like my unconscious thoughts were having a romp, mischievous fairies set free to hold an evening of reverie. I tried not to dread waking like I had for so long, but to open to it, to let come what's needed, to welcome, even invite the thoughts that were in my peripheral vision during the day. Like shy nocturnal creatures who live in the shadows, these thoughts flee from the hustle and bustle of my busy life, and they're so quickly crowded out by the shoulds and ought-tos that I've learned to hold so dearly, like my life depended on it. Instead, this evening time was a time to listen. Now let me be clear, I am not advocating for insomnia. I'm a big believer in sleep. I went through in vitro fertilization and suffered almost two years without soundly sleeping. Lupron, which is the first hormone you inject to stop your normal estrogen-progesterone cycle, has a side effect of insomnia. Plus, add in my fear, stress, and worry, and it was a cocktail of sleeplessness. I saw a sleep doctor for help, thinking I'd leave with a prescription to get my sleep back on track. But to my displeasure, she recommended that I work for it. Sleep restriction therapy. I would later discover this is the same toolbox I'd use with my young daughter to teach her body to sleep. You start by tracking how much sleep you're actually getting. Then you look at what time you should or need to wake each day. That's an amazing part of our internal timekeepers. Our whole body clock, all the tugs and tides of our biorhythms, they key off of when we awake. The start of your day is the key to sleep. Get up at the same time every day. When I went through sleep restriction therapy, I chose 6 a.m., and I was only getting five and a half, maybe six hours of sleep at night. So I had to stay awake till 12 or 12.30. Now here's the kicker. No screens or alcohol or anything other than low light, a bath, or a book for two hours before you sleep. That first night was brutal, and so was the second and the third. But on that third night, I actually stayed asleep the whole time until the alarm went off. Waking up in the morning was painful. So tired. So desperate to sleep more. But the next night and the one after that, I continued to stay asleep. By the fourth night, I was ready to add 15 minutes. I got to go to sleep at 11.45. I know that sounds like nothing, but it felt miraculous. Like earning a badge for sleeping. I kept at it every three to four days, adding another 15 minutes. It took me weeks, but I got back to sleeping eight hours at night. I've tried some other tricks, too. One of my favorites is Ariana Huffington writes about in Thrive. It's a 300 counting trick. You count backwards from 300 to zero, but by threes. 300, 297, 294, 291, 288, and so on. I rarely make it past the 100s, and usually I'm asleep by 222. It's just hard enough that my brain has to focus and my worry cycle has to go on hiatus. I've also found deep breathing, trying to actually feel my diaphragm muscle flex down, squishing my intestines and liver, and creating a vacuum to suck air into my lungs, and then seeing how slowly I can let it flex upward, gently pressing air back into the world. The quiet spaces between an inhale and an exhale are restful too. And the combination of tricking my hamster-wheeled mind to pay attention to that 
and the slow quieting effect of deep breathing on my heart often gets me back to sleep. Now, I'm definitely not an expert, only a beneficiary of help from others. But if you're suffering from sleepless nights, go see a sleep doctor. Take some deep breaths. Maybe try a nap. Maybe pick up a dream interpretation book. Whatever it is, try to get yourself rested. I thought I'd leave you today with an excerpt from a lullaby I wrote and sing to my daughter. Make a choice, make it clear, say it out loud for your soul to hear. Let it give rise to hope and fear, then let it go. My dear, make a choice, make it clear, say it out loud for your soul to hear, let it give rise to hope and fear. Then let it go, my dear. Thanks for tuning in this week. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Please subscribe to follow along as we continue our adventure exploring the next spring. And if you enjoyed it, share it with a friend. We'll see you next week.